All right, everybody. Welcome to the Long Monday podcast. I'm your host, Caleb, and I'm joined today, today, tonight, whatever. You know, you guys are gonna see this later. Um, I'm I'm joined today with Mike and Jason, our co-hosts, um, and we are here uh, after a hiatus or, or break. We're here for to kick off season two. So welcome, guys. Woo! Season two, baby. Caleb, you sound a little rusty on that one. I mean, yeah. you're like, oh, yeah. got day, night. You can tell it's been a month. Man, took a break. <laughs> it's been two years. I don't know what it's you're been talking that about. long, yeah. It feels like it. Yeah. I mean, it's been a uh, interesting month. You take a month off, you think it's going to be rest, and it turns out to be uh, the most chaotic month in the history <laughs> yeah. of the last several years, you know? Oh, well. It's because it's cause we took the break. The, the world it. it was an extensively it. long Monday. They, um yeah, That's they didn't right. know what to do without us. Well, we hope everyone out there in the audience had a great holiday season and rang in the new year safe and merry. Yeah, I knew I did. I had a birthday, and I got to see you two guys' lovely faces on my birthday, so it was really nice. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'm a decade older, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll just keep it quiet. Anyway. We're talking about birthdays real quick. I know. This I know. Will come out afterwards, but my birthday. Somebody's got a birthday. Tomorrow, that's right. Funny enough. Look at all these. Look at all these birthdays. I turned thirty-five. Thirty-five. <laughs> uh, thirty-five is, is an exciting year. Thirty-five. We t- that's how much. That's how no, old we think Mike is when you start talking to him, and then you realize, oh, what? Yeah. what happened? That's how old he thinks he is. It look. I got the experience of a forty-year-old, but the youth of a twenty-year-old. His career makes him that age. That's what it is. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Edu- educating years. Well, today we're talking uh, about a pretty interesting topic, I think. Um, specific. I think we're going to keep it specific to our market here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. But what we're talking about is theater for art or for profit. And so, Mike, Jason, either one of you want to take the lead on explaining a little bit of, about what we mean exactly when we talk about theater for art or profit? Sure. I can give a brief detail, I think. Um, so... You know, if our area and our listeners tend to be Myrtle Beach natives, then that's understandable. But let me break it out for a second to national regard. If you're a theater and you're somewhere like Broadway, right, you're in the zeitgeist of theater, uh, meaning you are in a theater hub, a theater central place, meaning you could do a lot of shows, a lot of different shows with different backgrounds, different genres, and tend to make profit because Broadway is the center of theater, for example, right? In Myrtle Beach, that's not yep. really the case. Um, theater is not really huge here. Now, theater has a place here, like in many places, but theater is not, you know, the huge draw it is in a place like Broadway. Uh, tourism, we have a lot of it here, but not many of our tourists are going to see local theater. They're going to big theaters, perhaps like Alabama Theater, to see a nice variety show, uh, but they're not coming to see, you know, the next season of Atlantic Stage or Theater of the Public. You know, they're just not here to do that. So in our case, what we mean is when we consider a season of shows, right? Usually in Atlantic Stage's case, for example, we did five shows per season, right? Considering what shows to put in, oftentimes was an argument of, is it for the artistry or is it for the profit? Um, So a show, like in the case of Myrtle Beach, the way I often describe it to people is if you do a musical in Myrtle Beach, you're probably gonna sell very well. That's not to say you'll sell out every time, Uh, But in most cases, musicals in this area do very well. They have big turnouts, especially in the case of Atlantic Stage. Every time Atlantic Stage did a musical, it was selling like hotcakes, right? People came to see those shows. If you do a show that is, you know, 
lesser known but critically acclaimed in terms of, you know, its artistry, in terms of its message, in terms of what it's promoting. Sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes it doesn't sell as well as a musical does. Now that's sometimes gauged towards the audience. Uh, sometimes audiences in this area just want to go and see a happy-go-lucky musical, right? Uh, but there's a lot that goes into it. So what we're claiming here, or what we're talking about here, is shows for artistry or shows for profit, the sort of intermingling of the two, and in cases in which either both are mingling together or cases in which one is superior over the other in terms of the current situation. To sum it up briefly. No, that was good. Yeah. I, I'm glad you took it, Mike, because I'm, my explanation would probably be like 20 minutes long trying to exclaim the conversation, what we're talking about here. So, Yeah, well, I think that it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. Um, and I think what I'd like to do to start out with is let's, let's establish a side here. Now, I think that in the end, we're, we're going to bring it all together. But in this topic of theater as an art form, I think... Um, there is no theater without an audience. But I, I think that it becomes very dangerous territory when we begin to f- lean more focus on the business side and for profit to, to cater more towards what's going to put people in the seats. Um, I believe then artistic integrity can have a danger, not always, not in every case, but I think it has a danger of becoming com- compromised. Sure. So that's, that's where I'm going to begin my argument. I was just going to say that I'll, and I was telling Caleb this earlier, but I see both sides of it. I can agree with claims to both sides. But I think it's wrong not to see theater Mm -hmm. as business. Um, And that at the end of the day, we have overhead, we have costs, things need to be paid for. And a lot of, I agree with you, in a lot of cases, artistic shows I've seen have been some of the best stuff I've seen. Um, I've been in artistic shows that has been some of my favorite shows I've ever been in. But I've also been in artistic shows where it's just not an audience crowd gatherer, right? Audiences aren't coming to see this artistic show we're putting on. And whether or not it's a great show, you know, there's this idea that, yes, theater needs an audience. What it also needs is people to pay for that viewing pleasure. And if we have, you know, if we have an audience of five, I mean, it's trouble. It's trouble brewing, right? So I think that, again, the two can commingle, but I think that, there's times where we really need to put business first is my argument to it. Um, now, Jason, I don't know if you have an alternate perspective to either um, I mean, I, myself, but I've always been one to particularly lean more towards the financial side of it. Uh, only because I think I sometimes look at it as a realist um, in this world. And I, I probably have judged this Myrtle beach market in some ways I have to look at that because I think Myrtle beach market um, is definitely, you have to look more financial side to it, which I think that's why Caleb and Mike, we were saying earlier, those big, big box theaters, like, you know, the big vaudeville um, showy kind of shows like Alabama Theater, Carolina Opry, they do well because audiences come see shows here. They're just here for the entertainment. They're here on vacation. That's a escapist form of theater. And a lot of times I think musicals, like we said, do well because it's an escapist, in some ways, an escapist form of theater. Not really, because there's definitely a lot of artistic, great musicals out there. We know that. Um, it's just, I think people can look at it and say, oh, we hear music, so... Music's fun, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm outside um, of, of this sort of serious world, whereas book plays tend to be, book plays, straight plays, whatever you want to call them, um, they don't have that sort of, you have to rely on the acting, you know, to carry the show. So, for me, um, even if I was in, I lived in Chicago for a while and did theater in Chicago, and, and even then, I think, for me, I, I've always drawn the case um, 
three for them, two for us, if you're doing a five-season show. So three shows being the moneymakers, they carry the season, they keep it going, two shows for us, meaning two shows for the theater. They need to be shows that can be artistic, can be uh, controversial, they can be whatever you want them to be. Um, the, the argument I more take on it is more of knowing your market and knowing your audience. Does that make sense? Um, for art and profit, I think, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I agree with Caleb in some ways that I think it's great to have artistic integrity. But if you're in a place like Myrtle Beach, artistic integrity is really hard, man. I mean, you you, you know, you, you can want to do um, like PEMDAS. I thought PEMDAS was a show that we did at Atlantic Stage. Fun, super creative, cool show. Audiences would leave that show just like, I mean, some would love it and then some would just be dumbfounded by it. You know, they'd be like, what did I just watch? What did I go see? Literally, they'd go right over the TOR and see Nonsense or something, which is a classically known kind of show, a show like that. And they'd be like, oh, it's the best show I've ever seen. You know, I mean, so you carry that. Nonsense would sell, you know, 3,000 tickets. PEMDAS would sell 150. You know, I mean, that's sort of the argument you make. But I'm going off on a tangent here. Um, so I fall I fall on that line. I think there's a, there's a defined line between, you know, finance and profit. I always lean more, I think, to finance. Because you're right, Mike. It's, it's a business. You have to keep the roof. You have to keep the lights going. You have to keep things moving. So I argue, I push back on artistic, artistic integrity sometimes. Well, if I could ask then, Caleb, how do you feel about three for them, two for us, that idea? I think it is... A shitty pill to swallow, but it's <laughs> it's realistic. Um, yeah, yeah. It's no, I horse pills like can't get it down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I I hate I absolutely hate that that is a real a reality for us, but it's practical. It makes sense, and it's something that I would vote for. Um, I think, I mean, it's. You have to understand, I'm, I, I'm speaking as an actor, mm-hmm. someone who who wants to do shows that really um, challenge an audience, that really try and tell them, you know, tell a message, you know, try to reach the audience and leave them uh, better as a as a person than when they came to the theater. Those are the types of shows I think every actor wants to do, but. I understand it, and that's that's where I'm coming from artistically because I am I'm an artist. But as a company member of a theater company, we have to recognize that there are certain things you have to think about marketing. Part of the reason um, I would argue, part of the reason we had uh, smaller crowds aside from our capacity um, for PIMDOS versus Nonsense was because of marketing. You know, yeah. um, there are. You know, theaters around here that do way more marketing. Um, sure. And that's just something that so people know more about them. You know, so another thing is location. There are a lot of different uh, variables that go into oh, something yeah. like this. Um, and those those fall into business. They fall into business. Yeah. And I, sorry, Kendall, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But no, I totally, uh, I 100% agree with that. Sometimes the for-profit ideology here, and I think that that's what you know. people hear like, oh, you're only going to do it for art or for profit. No, part of the profit sensibility is is knowing how to market yourself, knowing how to, you know, all the elements that can make you win. Because you're right. There's a, in New York, you, you pick places like New York, which is, we said New York because it is a theater mecca, right? I mean, we know that. But even their shows go out of business all the time, you know? 
because marketing, word of mouth, whatever you want to use. So there's an element to it, right? Um, I mean, even places like when I lived in Chicago, uh, Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf had great artistic shows, you know, August Osage County. And like, I mean, you, you, I mean, literally when I was there, they were doing that show at Steppenwolf and it was destroying it, but it was because of such good word of mouth and because the newspapers there were advertising it and talking about it. But literally they did like three or four shows afterwards that were, I mean, didn't do any money. You know, it's like a fine line of whatever. I mean, the Goodman Theater would do Christmas Carol every year to make money. And that's a big theater, you know. So I think there's that line of you got you to gotta figure out how to do it. And I think just in Myrtle Beach, it's hard to figure out how to market something and make it sell. And especially now with COVID and it's going on for now 10 months. Who knows how many months it's going to go. Um you know, I mean, now I think it's almost all got to be for profit at this point until people get it back in the right direction. Although you could say it could be all about artistry because there's not anything being done so people could be more artistic. So, I mean, we're being artistic with being this podcast. So, you know, it's, a, it's I don't know, that art and profit. Yeah. Caleb's scoffing at me. Caleb's yeah, it's a hard rolling. thing to, it's a hard thing to judge though you're right jason when you say that covid is this thing that we can't really mm-hmm. judge yet because theaters haven't really come yeah. back yet there have been theaters that have done shows but you're right we don't know if we could do like the artsiest show ever and sell seats just because people right. want to see theater yeah. maybe uh but until we do a show and then see the turnout i mean like we could do you know death of a salesman and it you know regardless of how well we do the show people could just be like yeah i don't want to exactly. see theater right now and it's like, but it's death of a salesman. My God. It's like, well, I don't care. I don't want to be inside with people. And it's like, well, there yeah. goes that, I guess. But you could also do, you know, some huge, we could do Wicked, for example, you know, huge seller. And people could still be like, oh, I love Wicked, but no, exactly. I'm not going to theater yeah. right now, um, which is tough, obviously. So there's got to be some, you know, figure, stats, thing, like a first show to see, okay, what can we do? Do we do it for profit? Do we do it for artistry? Do we see the turnout? But I think you're right. I think... I think it has to be a profit show. Uh, the first one's got to be just to see if it's like, okay, we've got it. I mean, Wicked's not, you know, feasible, but let's just say Wicked, for example, right? Is Wicked big enough? Like, it's clearly big enough, but is it big enough to get people mm-hmm. in those seats again? This whole COVID yeah. thing. And if it isn't, then I don't think artistry really stands a chance uh, at this point. Well, I absolutely, absolutely disagree. <laughs> Completely Good. disagree. Thank God. Um, <laughs> Good. It's... It's difficult, and my personal perspective. I don't think I'm, I'm. This is my personal perspective. This is not. Uh, this does not reflect the views and opinions of anyone else here or any theater that I'm attached to. But I think it's representative of the nature of the relationship between theater and its audience across the centuries. Part of me wants to say, "Fuck the audience. Fuck the market." screw you we're gonna do what we want to do we're gonna say what we want to say and we're going to we're gonna create we're gonna do what we want to do but i also (laughs) recognize (laughs) that we need them we need them to be to want us to do these things so that we can have the funding to do this stuff and we have the audience to otherwise we will no longer have someone to tell our stories to and so it's it's a very difficult um, it's a very difficult thing to balance, 
And so I understand begrudgingly the, what, three for them, two for us. Uh, I, I understand that, which, by the way, what we mean by that is we'll do three crowd pleasers and then two, uh, two plays that feed us artistically. Yeah. And that's not to say we can't find artistic um, fulfillment in the, in the other crowd pleasers. And I say crowd pleasers flippantly, but, uh, you know, you can, you can find things that are well known um, and still be artistically fulfilled. You can find, uh, you can dig a little deeper. Oh, yeah. Even if you have to dig deeper than what the playwright originally intended. Uh, If that's what you need to do to do it, then by all means. I know there's not a whole lot of artistic fulfillment in uh, plays like Tuna Christmas or uh, or anything like that, Greater Tuna. But if you dig deep enough, satirically, there's something to say. And so I think that, you know, depends on the type of actor and artist you are, but I think that it's it's just it's one of those things that I wrestle with a lot because understanding the responsibility that comes with running a theater company, mm-hmm. but then also the personal responsibility as an artist to do something important and to do work that means something, not something that, you know, just pays the bills, you know? Sure. And I agree too. I, no, I mean, listen, would I like to do shows that are artistic all the time I always want to do that kind of stuff but listen there's always big shows I always want to do too I mean you could argue a show that we've been talking about possibly happening if it ever does is A Few Good Men I think A Few Good Men is a crowd pleaser but also at the same time is artistically a very challenging and great piece just because simply by who's written it and all these other things elements to it so I mean finding those type of pieces I guess let's take COVID out of the conversation let's just pretend like COVID's not happening if we're talking in general artistic and for-profit, I think a lot of it is, for me, is knowing your audience and knowing what to pick. Does that make sense? Like, you can still do the three for them and find shows that can fulfill you but can hopefully put asses in the seats, right? That That's ultimately what it is. Um, I just feel like I've seen it too many times where there's the pushback against doing those type of shows. Does that make sense? Because it feels like, I don't want to do that. I want to do X, Y, Z. I don't want to do ABC, you know? And when you go back and look and people are just like dumbfounded, like, I can't believe we're not doing well. I mean, because we, we picked the, the risky shows. There has to be this accountability with it when we do that too. So I think there's, I don't know, man. I, I, all right. Yeah. Yeah where I'm trying to go with that statement. But yeah, Caleb, I get where you're totally coming from. I mean, I, I get it. I don't want to sacrifice artistic integrity. I mean, one of my favorite shows I ever did um, at Atlantic Stage was um, Steady Rain. I mean, we were lucky to have 10 people every night in that show. And I think it's a sh- amazing show people missed out on. They didn't get a chance to see it, and they should have because Tom and Steve were phenomenal. And it, was a, it was a great show. Um, and everybody that saw it loved it. I mean, it wasn't like we we never had anybody go, oh my God, it was terrible. We, everybody like raved about it. But it's a show you're trying to pitch it to people and they go, what's it about? Two cops um, doing corrupt things um, and they just talk a lot. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds like a winner. You know, if it was two cops doing corrupt things, but they sing songs by Frank Sinatra, we would have been sold out the whole show. You know, I mean, it's like, it's just, it's just timing, location. Myrtle Beach is a weird market, man. I feel like, you know, T.O.R., 
do musicals all the time and some of their musicals bomb i mean they don't well not bomb but you know i mean they don't sell like they thought i mean they did a play called shine sideshow i like i love sideshow but man they couldn't sell tickets it's about circus freaks man they were letting people just going i don't want to watch this you know but then they did a show priscilla queen of the desert which is about drag queens and you'd think oh in south carolina drag queen show risky packed out because the songs were poppy 70 songs you know you never know what's going to do it sometimes yeah, I, I mean, I, the, some of the best, and I'm keeping it to Myrtle Beach specifically in our area, but some of the best shows I've seen are the risky yeah. shows that are artistically integral. I mean, another example is Red. When TOR did Red a few years ago, God, that was such a good show, such a good production of it. I think when I saw it, there were 20 people. I in the saw audience. it, there was four. It's like, you look around, yeah. you look around and you go, well, then, I mean, God, yeah. was it good. It was so good. And it's like Steady Rain. I saw Steady Rain too. Fantastic. Brilliant. But like, there's no one here, man. Like, how can we really, you know, you put all that effort and time into it. Let's say in the case of, you know, we usually have a five-week rehearsal process. You put all that time and effort, and then you come to a house mm-hmm. of 10 people, and it's like, why are we doing this? Like, you know, these 10 people can certainly enjoy this, and I'm doing it for them, and, you know, the show must go on, obviously, but, like, you know, something like Boeing, which was the last show that Jason and I did. Well, Jason had Drive Miss Daisy, but it was the last show that, like, got produced and put onto audience before COVID happened. I mean, that show was doing very well. And like you do that show and you get such an audience reaction and you look out and there's literally like 200 people there and you're like, God, this is great. This is the fulfillment. Okay. This is the part I wanted to get to the fulfillment I'm looking for in theater, which is odd to say is certainly artistic, right? I'm certainly looking for enrichment of the soul, as I said it before, but another part of theater that I'm really a big fan of it is when I go outside afterwards or go out and, you know, people tell me that I did great. Right, that that sort of fulfillment of hey, I literally just watched you put on that thing you put so much time and effort into. I loved it. That is an incredible feeling. And when there's ten people in that house, you don't often get that because it's just a it's a numbers game at that point, right? Maybe two of the people come up to you, right? But Boeing, for example, I'd have like eighty people come out of there and be like, man, that was great, loved it. I'm just like, yes, awesome, absolutely. All the work I put into that rehearsal time has paid off. With an artistic show. Sometimes I feel like it didn't pay mm-hmm. off in that way. Artistically, sure, right? Got a lot, of, lot out of it in terms of my acting skills increasing, having artistic fulfillment. But man, I mean, like art, like you said, Caleb, you need an audience. You need it. Theater needs audience. Otherwise, what is it? And if the audience really isn't there in that capacity, I kind of feel bad for yes. what we're doing. We're putting so much time into this thing and money too, yeah. right? And we're not getting returns. So that's where I, I stand. And plus, it. sorry. No, I, I would agree, but I would clarify my agreement with you by by stating that I agree that theater needs the audience, but I don't think it's necessary for the actor. As, as an actor, I don't need the audience. But okay. as a member of a company, it's something I think about. You haven't reached that point yet, mm-hmm. uh, Caleb. You're, you're what what point? You're still thinking about being a star. I mean, being a me- mentally uh, uh, doing the best work ever. Um, it helps when you have a hundred people clapping for you. Uh, um, no, it, no, no, no. I it mean, does. I it helps to have an for, audience. Of course, you get a feed on that energy. It's a, it's no, a, no. What Mike's talking about is there's an ego feed. But yeah, uh, but I that's what, what I'm saying. I, I totally too. get yeah. that. Totally get that. Yeah. I have more because, of a fuck you attitude towards the audience as an actor. Sure. sure. But you know. And just like that, Caleb's not going to be in any shows coming up. No, I'm just 
<laughs> no. Audience is going to be coming out of the theater going, oh, that's the guy who said it the F you about us. Yeah, I mean, ass. no, no. There's the guy from Boeing Boeing. Let's talk to Purely him. Purely as an actor, though. <laughs> Purely as an actor. No, listen, you want to do the best work. As, as sure. a member of a theater company, I we need them. I want them yeah. to do whatever we have to to bring, bring them in. No, no, I get, and so I, what Mike's, Mike, I understand what you're saying too, because you come out of the show, like, listen, I've done shows at Atlantic Stage, I've done shows at TOR, like, listen, I'm going to use The Bodyguard as an example, because The Bodyguard, <laughs> as, as lowbrow <laughs> entertainment as it is, and anybody in that show will admit it, I mean, mm-hmm. there were some great performances, and that's got nothing to do with it, but the show itself is just basic, fun, like, brainless uh- entertainment that's what it is right but people the, the yeah but people it is people love garbage. it i mean you would come out of there and people would be like oh my yeah. god i love whitney houston oh my god i mean they would just like and i would have people come up to me all the time mike would crack up about this first of all they thought i was a different person but because but which was more of a fulfillment for me that they thought i was a completely different person playing that part which will be bruce which we'll talk to in our next you know time we talk to bruce i'll ask him um but like they love that kind of stuff. They would just rave about it and you would get such a high off of it going, Oh my God, because here's the other thing too about it. Everybody knows as an actor, you don't make a lot of money unless you're in Hollywood or on Broadway. Maybe even then it's not tons of money. So part of the fulfillment is people come and say, Oh my God, good job. Like Mike said, I've been working on this thing for six weeks, five weeks. It's good to know that 80 or 90 people are thanking me. There'd be shows that you do at Atlantic stage. You're lucky if 80 or 90 people saw the show. Throughout the entire run. Yeah, Exactly. And you're going to get five of them to actually stay afterwards that aren't your parents or family or friends and say, oh, my God, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. So those five or six, yes, well, that's great. And I think if Steve was here, he would probably agree because Steve has freely admitted before on this thing, like, I'm tired of being this old and only doing shows for seven people. It's like it sucks. Part of it's just this great moment. But um, but that's and I'll use Bodyguard as an example because I feel like Bodyguard, when Tim McGee probably picked that show. Tim probably looked and said, how many asses can I get in the seat with this show? Like, I literally don't think he'd read the script and went, this is amazing. I think he went, this is a Whitney Houston show. It's the first show out of the summer. Let's pocket as much cash as humanly possible to pay for the next three shows, right? That's probably literally what Tim yep. was thinking, yep. right? It's and a I know smart business decision. It's a smart move, but, I, but I'll be honest. And, you know, I mean, Tom, if Tom was here, he would probably agree. He would talk, probably talk about this. We could ask him. I don't think Tom, um, Tom Penn, who we're talking about audiences, uh, who's, the artistic director for Atlantic Stage, I don't think Tom would have that same feeling. Tom would not want to just go, ah, we're going to do the bodyguard or we're going to do blah, 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 just to make a bunch of cash in the beginning. Tom wouldn't look at it that way because Tom would want to look at it from an intellectual, artistic perspective. So there comes the mentality. I don't think Tim's not looking at shows for artistic perspective because I know there's definitely shows that Tim wants to do. I mean, he did Rent. He did, like I said, he did Sideshow because these are shows that interested him. He took risks on them. Rent paid off because it's a huge show, but it's also got some artistic merit to it. Um, you know, there's that balancing act. And I think um, Atlantic Stage, we always tended to skew artistic. We artistically skewed heavy. I mean, there were seasons we had a couple seasons ago where I swear to God, every show was an artsy indie show. And that's fine. That's great. I'm not saying they're bad shows because I enjoyed a lot of those shows. And they were great shows. But... We struggled to put butts in seats. Whereas when we did like Christmas Carol, Doubt, you know, those shows were name shows and they put butts in seats, man. They did, you know. So, I mean, there's got to be something said for that type of picking shows. Does that make sense? Like, I'm just saying, like, 
there's an art to it and there's an art to knowing your audience and knowing who's coming to see your shows and training them to do it. Like TR is slowly training to train people to watch book plays, slowly trying to train people to watch more artistically shows, more, um, LGBTQ type shows. I mean, he, Tim is slowly pushing those shows in there because that's his mission. He's trying to do it. And he's slowly integrating it in. You can't just right out the gate, just go boom, boom, boom. We're going to do this, so this, 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 or this show, because if people get too much of that stuff, they're going to be like, Oh God, I can't, I can't stomach this much, you know, um, because your general audience is not all them wants to see that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't want to see that. Sometimes I want fluff. Sometimes I want art. I mean, it just depends on my mood. For theater, I like to see quality theater. You know, I mean, I think there's a difference between quality and crap. You can still do a fun, goofy show, and it's still gonna be quality. Like Tuna, I think our production of Tuna was quality because Steve and I, I think, did a good job. I think Tom and Steve did a good job. The quality is still there. It's just it's a goofy, stupid show, but you still have the quality of acting in there. So, well, Jason, you brought up Bodyguard. Now, again, I said I was going to bring that up pretty quickly. I mean, I was in Bodyguard too, and like I said, the script is complete yep. hot garbage. It is trash. Like we read it on the first read, yeah. I'm like, "Are you serious?" When like, I brought my this, like, how did this get you in, printed? Like, I was like, "Oh god," <laughs> I think I even told you you're playing yeah. a stalker, like, like killer. That's creepo. That's it, man. Yeah. <laughs> For those, yeah, for those who did not see it, it is the Whitney Houston film, The Bodyguard, just the musical stage production version. Um, and I'd argue it's oh, worse the, than the yeah. film. Like it is, I don't know who adapted this thing, but they did not. I mean, do the a good movie job. won like um, a bunch of Razzies, and so, right? I think the movie won like. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. It's, yeah. it's a bad movie. <laughs> the show's even worse. Like, but as Jason said, like. I got to tell you, man, that was a yeah. fun show to do. Like, I was not getting any artistic fulfillment out of that show, but doing that show every night was hell yeah. of a lot of fun because, I, one, I played a stalker villain character. I always loved that. Two, people react to it. You got 250 people, you know, jiving to these Whitney Houston songs, clapping after every one, having audible reactions to things, and it's like, oh, my God, there's a freaking audience yeah. here. There's a huge group of people consuming this thing right now. Even if it's, you know, the script is horrendous, even if the lines coming out of my mouth are stupid, right? And, oh, God, it's, it's tough, right? Because, like, zero artistic fulfillment, but, man, was it fun doing that show every night. And it's, it's like, one of my favorite theater experiences with doing that show because it was just so fun to portray such a, you know, character. And I know Caleb's just, like, freaking Rachel, out. Rachel, you're like, mine. It had will always no, be mine, Rachel. Oh, yeah, well. Whatever happens. I don't wanna, no, I don't want to, I don't want to revisit the lines. Don't make me revisit the lines. Make me revisit the experience. I made of a jizz joke. What are you trying to say? Wait. I had a jizz joke, like in the middle of the thing. Oh, Frank, Frank comes everywhere. What? <laughs> That's literally but the line, Caleb. But I'm Jason, not how, but Jason, how about that uproarious a, laughter that came right after it, man. it? I would. Right? I get a huge laugh. And exactly. I ate it up, You get dude. that huge fulfillment. Ate it up every night. Exactly. You get that huge moment of like, got him. Like, just got 250 people laughing. Yeah. Feels good. You're underselling it, Mike. It's about 315 is what fits in that theater. <laughs> so it's even more. 315 Whatever. people, probably. Yeah. Anyway, Caleb, right. go ahead. Sorry. I, I, I cannot deny the energy and the the feeling that you get from an audience like that. But there's just a part of me that's just like so sad. It takes that show to get that kind of reaction out of somebody. Yeah, but Caleb, what? would you do that show? Would you do that show? If someone's if, if me and Mike were like, hey, Caleb, listen, there's a role of the um the bouncer 
the bodyguard, which is like horrible, horrible role. Would you do it? Probably not. I'll do Probably you one not. better. No, I'll do you one better. Would you play the male lead bodyguard in the bodyguard? Would you play Frank Farmer? I don't. I've never read the He's show, the so I don't know. I have to read the show before it's, I. It's before bad. I accept it, probably so. Probably not. I don't know. I'll just say it, it's again. It's a horrendous script, but he's the male lead. He's got the most lines as a male character in the show. You're on stage a lot. Like you, again, are you going to find artistic fulfillment? No, probably not. But it's a big role you for that won't show. Find artistic fulfillment. Would you do all. it? Trust me. I I can't no, say whether or not I would because depending on where I was at the time, maybe I would. Maybe I just wanted I wanted the stage. Of course that of course feeds the ego. But that's the thing. Sure. You know, it's just it's just a complex relationship that we have. Well, it's it's insane. Caleb, have you acted in what you would call like big uh, profit shows before? Or has it all been like artistic based shows? Because, you know, I think of Atlantic Stage. I'm trying to remember the shows I mean, we've I've all worked gone through here. Behind like, in, backstage on. Yeah, uh, but specifically specifically acting the person that the audience sees as the art that's being produced. Cause you know, a sound designer, they're not thinking of the sound designer when the show is going on. It's kind of like that element yeah. that just exists. Oftentimes it's the acting they're noticing the director. They don't yeah. really consider, you know, all that other stuff. I actually don't think I have. Okay. I think, I that's think so. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've played in Romeo and Juliet Shakespeare. Okay. But even that, is not quite that's a that's a different thing that's a different animal it's certainly going to get people in the seats it's shakespeare but i mean it's it's also shakespeare you know there's a lot of richness there so um that's one of those that like kind of transcends exactly like anything we're talking about right now because it it hits both but let's well caleb since you've done like designs for shows in the back i mean think about shows that we had where they were like big audiences um like like a large crowd would come and people would be excited versus a show maybe you've done where you didn't get those big crowds. I mean, if you had it, give me two examples. Give me like a big one and a small one. Um, well, well a, I think a, what tuna Christmas fits that bill. I, think. I was going to say a tuna Christmas. Um, okay. Obviously. Yeah. That, that, that I think surprised all of us. And we have to credit Steve for that. Cause it was his idea to really do those shows um, because they'd put people in the seats and he was right. Um, I don't think we had a small audience. I mean, relative to how many we could fit in our mm-hmm. small space. But, but now think of a show you've done where it was a little show. Yeah. Like, you're lucky if you get 10 people in it. Can you think of a show you did? Well, I uh, wit. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, so now uh, look. 4,000 so, miles. I mean, so let's use wit because I'm not going to use show you're in. So you could, you could, you could almost say, so we'll use Tuna Christmas and we'll use wit. You were like backstage, so you could you weren't on stage, so you could get maybe an audience grasp in some ways because you you know you're listening to them, but you're also listening to the audience. Tuna Christmas, arguably, not a Pulitzer winner, right? Wit was a Pulitzer winner, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. I'm okay. Well, I know four thousand or something. Miles, I, don't, I don't know about Wit. Well, Wit, I think it was a, it's an award winner. No, I'm Witt, pretty sure it's no Wit. Wit won the Pulitzer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So you got Wit Pulitzer, definitely I think a Tony winner for the lead when she was on Broadway, right? Did she win the Tony, I think, maybe? Oh, anyway, won a bunch of stuff. It's an award-winning play. Tuna Christmas, a cult kind of classic kind of play, right? Artistically, looking at both story, the storyline of Tuna Christmas almost non-existent. It's just a bunch of vignettes following these weirdos at Christmas, right? Wit is following a woman going through like this emotional rediscovery, okay? 
audiences were definitely more excited, right, by Tuna Christmas. So, like, I mean, that's just one of those things where I think it's hard to, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know what I'm, my question is for you is, but like, how do you feel about those two shows? Like, fulfilling fulfillment-wise, listening and watching those two shows, which show did you have more fun? Which show did you enjoy more? I mean, like, like think about those questions. Like, you know what I'm saying? Right. You know, and I, I think, well, I have first have to clarify, I was not an actor in either one of those shows. I was purely sure. technical. I was stage manager for Tuna Christmas, and I was set designer for Wit. Sure. Um, so technical shows. Um, I, I can't really speak to which one I had more fun with because I had fun doing both. It was actually the first time I did set design for wit. Mm -hmm. So I, I had a, a blast with that, but, um, my, my response though, of course with wit, when I would see, you know, a small audience out there and you know, it, it actually did, I think better than most artistic shows that we would do because mm -hmm. we had, we had Mindy in the lead. Um, and she's awesome. And she brings a lot of people in, uh, of mm -hmm. course, but the, the, I mean, there were still nights where it was, it was scarce. Um, and I think my response to that was, of course, of course, a show like this would have a night like this. It's inevitable. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, now reflecting on that is, is sad, but at the same time, um, I, you have to recognize the difference between the two ones, one's a crowd pleaser, one's fun, one's has, is full of energy, full of comedy and not everybody wants to be challenged the way yeah. I want to challenge them. You know, the, the way sure. that most artists want to challenge people. I think we would kill ourselves if we, all we did, all we could do were those types of shows, um, that is, it's just, it's one of those, I mean, so my attitude towards it is, is the same is, it's the, there's this duality that you have to balance, at least for me mm -hmm. personally. Um, I do have that attitude of like, well, we'll screw the audience, you know, who cares what they think? Let's do what we want to do. But then at the same time, I, but I love you. I need you. We, we need you to yeah. be here. Um, yeah. you know, it's, so it's not, it's not, my attitude isn't, just let me cater to you so I can do what I want to do. There is an element of that, but that's not, that's not the whole thing. Um, I do love the audience at the same time. I love the audience. I want them, I want them to come in. I want them to like what we do. And if we've got to change a little bit of what we do for them to like it, sometimes that's what I want to do. Um, certainly not most of the time, but you know, it's, 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 a, I don't know. That's, so that's my answer. I mean, my, my attitude towards it is, you know, it's twofold. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying you're wrong, Caleb. I'm not doing it at all because I actually think both those shows belong in a season, like those type of shows. I think, I think the problem is though, is that, um, you need to know how to get both those shows in a season. Does that make sense? We have to be willing to say, yes. okay, I'm, I'm going to do the, the goofy because I think both of them matter and what happens is I think if you had had three shows that were like say Tuna Christmas that year where everything sold out when you did Wit and you had nine people in there it's like well you know what we've made our money so doing this doesn't the, the bitter pill we're swallowing doesn't hurt so bad because we had the money to pay for this show 
and get it done and can do it and can artistically feel good about it. But we know that our coffers aren't empty. Does that make sense? And that was always a struggle at Atlantic Stage was like trying to figure out how to fill fill our, you know, our bank accounts because, you know, and I, I think part of it, you're right. There was we talked about this early on in this episode. Location is a big thing too. Word of mouth is a big thing. Marketing is a big thing. And I yeah. think a lot of times small theaters they struggle because they don't have the financial backing, right? TOR has been a business for like 50 years, right? So 50 years, their modern version of them has been around for like 20, okay? So that long a time, they can do bigger things, take more risks. But even now during COVID, we're seeing that they can't take as big a risk as you think because every theater is like an inch away from being broke because they rely on the next shows or like a couple shows out to pay for those big shows. But when you're a small theater, and I can argue, it's like the rule of what's the restaurant rule is like if you got you got five years in a restaurant, if you don't make, you need to last five years because five years is what it makes for you to start making money. Because if you can't get it past five years, you're not going to get there. I think theaters are a lot the same way. I think Atlantic Stage, we made it about five or six years, and then we moved, right? We moved to a different location. That move hurt us. It, I mean, let's put us back to square one. Right? If we had never moved and we were still in that same building, we probably would have been doing a lot better with more money, more numbers. Essentially, as soon as we moved to Atlantic Stage, it was like a new theater. It was basically like a new location, a new place. Might as well be everything new. Smaller house, right? So you had to be more creative. So I think all those adjustments, and I'm not blaming anything on Atlantic Stage at all. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying small theaters, it's, just, it's a big risk, man. I think you have to say... The for-profit ideology for me is that if, if you're small and you're taking a risk every time, you got to take more chances to make money at first to keep yourself go, go, going. And then when you get big enough, then you can go from three for them, two for us. You can go to two for them, three for us. You know, you can start shifting that, that line. But in the hopes is if you've been around that long and you've been inserting all those small artsy shows, people are gonna, your built-in audience is going to go, oh, man, I can't wait for them to do PEMDAS or I can't wait for them to do WIT, you know. Because, oh, yeah, we got Christmas Carol. We love Christmas Carol. You know, Christmas Carol's good. We'll still buy tickets because we're season ticket holder. But I'm looking forward to, you know, whatever is coming next. Does that make sense? I mean, why did we do Christmas Carol as often as we did Atlantic Stage? I think it was financial. Yeah. I think it was a financial grab. Because we we knew people loved it and people would come see it. Uh, There were the two seasons we had musicals at the end. I mean, yeah. I, I enjoy, I greatly enjoyed, but well, Charlie Brown, I'm not a fan of that show particularly, but I enjoyed the production of it. Sure. Um, and both those shows sold very, very well because they're I, musicals. And, and I think that's the musicals. point. I think towards those last few years, we started picking more shows like that because I think the ideology of getting more money, filling up our bank accounts was a bigger thing. I think when we first move, moved there, we took a little more risk with more risky shows. You know, we took more of the original plays, more Kevin's original shows. We took more artistic things because it's like, hey, we're at Lang Stage. We've been around. We're F it. We're going to go straight for these artistic shows. And by that move, plus that, it was like, it, it was like square one recreating. So it was like, you know, but then again, you never know, man. I mean, look, Christmas, Tuna Christmas did really, really well. Greater Tuna did so-so. So, I mean, I don't think you... Audiences are weird. They change. They're fickle. They jump around. Um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Like, I mean, I'll use example movies this year. Movies this year because of COVID. If you look at the Academy Award, like, runners, they're going to be all in their Academy Award kind of, like, focal points. They're all indie movies. Because 
there was no big movies this year. So all the little things, artistic things, because people were clamoring to get it at home to watch, 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 right? That probably would never happen. Usually there's always like a couple of big movies in that list. Mm-hmm. Um, theater, you know, like we said, who knows? I mean, as soon as the theaters all mega up and people want to come, people may want to see little shows. They may want, Red might have been a sellout show if audiences are ready to come see a show. You know, who knows what's going to happen? So I just talked for like 20 minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, there no, I, I agree. Um, I think at this point we have to, you know, or at least I have to, I think you guys have been on the same, on the same page the entire time. But I, I think at this point in the conversation, I have to, I have to, uh, concede that, you know, there is the business side of it. And speaking as a, a company member of Atlantic stage, you know, I want, I want, more than anything else to reach out more to the audience base and to, to Mm -hmm. interact with them more, you know, let them in behind the curtain sort of, you know, on productions that that was the entire mentality behind vlogging um, rehearsals and, you know, from an actor's perspective on how they work from the stage manager and assistant director's point of view of a production and putting on a show. Cause a lot of, a lot of the time, you know, those are the, that's the magic, right? Um, and I think that I, we want to kind of in, invite the audience a little bit to be part of the family. And that's one of the, for lack of a better word, tactics that we could, that we implement to get people in the seats. Um, because we want to have a good relationship. We want to, because going back to, you know, the marketplace and, you know, location where we are at, not just geographical location, but community as well, um, we have to be able to, you know, um, have a good relationship with the community who is our audience. And we have to make decisions, of course, based on that to, to keep that relationship uh, healthy of so that we can be healthy and do the things that we want to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying ever rule out like original stuff. And I, yeah. and I, I know it's going to sound like on this, on this conversation that I'm like harboring on like and, and going at Atlantic stage for stuff. And, and listen, it's good that we did original plays. It's good. We did Kevin's original shows. It's great. We would do those, uh, play festivals. Those were awesome. I mean, that's, that, those are things you need to be doing because it's, it gets your audience exposed to new works, to good things. And I get that. Um, but if you're going to take those chances with those original new works, right, maybe you need to do Charlie Brown, right? Mike, you, you need to do a Charlie Brown musical in there to afford, to be able to, to pay for something else. However, musicals cost a lot of money, so people would argue, oh, well, musicals cost a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. So we, we know that. But, I mean, you need to be able to get those kind of shows in there and say, hey, we're, we're going to do a Christmas Carol. I'm going to do this show, this show, to do these three things. Um, and I know um, I have literally heard us have company meetings. I'm giving a little bit of info here away. I'm not going to give any names. Insider but, info. Insider info, uh, uh, hashtag inside. Um, no, but I've literally heard conversations. People say, I don't want to be a part of a company that doesn't have artistic shows. That's only going to do, what was the phrase? It's only going to do the odd couple. (laughs) I don't want to be in a company that only does the odd couple, which I get that. I get the argument to that, but at the same time, maybe that company doesn't exist in Myrtle beach. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. 
because the odd yep. couple or that type of show, sometimes you got to do it. You might have to do two or three in order to keep it alive, you know? And then some people say, well, I'd rather it die than that. I mean, that's fine. But yeah. and like, I'm coming back to it. What Mike said, it's a business. It's a business it's like any business. You know, I work in a business and guess what? We sell product that is cutting edge. That is like tech heavy. And we sell four of them. But guess what? I sell about 45 of the old school version 1.0, you know, but in order to sell that head tech heavy item, I got to, you know, sell like a ton of the other ones because it pays for the rent. Right. Um, and that's, I think the hope with theater, it's like, you gotta, you gotta sell the, you gotta sell the schlock in order to get the artistic you stuff. have to whore yourself out so that you that's can exactly do right. You yeah. You know, <laughs> what is I'm not, with... I'm not a, uh, Caleb's all about whoring. I mean, yeah, he's, what got, is with he's, season, got, he's season got a real potty, really he got a real explicit. potty mouth at season two. It's like, we're going to have to put, ex, you know, parental advisory on all these tags on these episodes. Cato's full board. We'll just label it explicit. It's all right. Oh my God. We have to bleep him. Well, we're, we're comfortable now. I mean, this is, this is for the audience. You know, I'm, I'm over here bashing the audience, but this is, we're doing this for you guys. Um, because we love you, you know, it's, it's, it's a relationship. It's a real one. Except so, Caleb, he doesn't love you. Caleb just, said, just, Caleb just said "f you guys." You didn't hear that earlier on? I think I say that to everybody. I say that to okay, people yeah. that I, I I mean it. I don't mean it. F uh, you, man. I love you, bro. Exactly, love you, bro. Love you, bro. I got it. I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's a tough one. I I think that this is one of the ones that you know, it would add color to this type of discussion to bring in people, um, on a follow up episode where you know someone like like tom who is the artistic mm -hmm. director you know what goes through his head when he's picking shows for a season certainly those are yeah. because of course he's balancing these two seemingly contradictory uh ideas you know as he's trying to to do his thing and yeah. lead a theater company as well as maintain artistic integrity people like um uh like milton justice who is an acting teacher you know, and he's, mm -hmm. of course, he, I would assume, um, I, I'm not assuming, I know his, uh, his opinion would be more <laughs> on the artistic side, but, uh, these are the, this, I think it, this conversation, I think we can, we can add to in the future, add some color, add some, some people yeah. in. I think it's important to ask our guests. I mean, we bring yeah. people on, you know, let's ask them, let's just say, Hey, how do you, what's your perspective on this? Have you ever thought about it? I mean, um, we're, I think we have hopes this season is to get other guests in here, you know, hopefully maybe uh, Tim McGee from theater Republic. We'll get him in here and yes. ask, pick his brain. You know, I'd love to get, cause Caleb, I agree with you. I think a lot of, um, I mean, Tom and then Milton and those guys, they come from an intellectual artistic educational background. So I think a lot of times when you're in college collegiate or in that sort of training, you're always going to side for the art and that's good because you're, you're, you're building that, that intellect inside your students and building that sort of knowledge. Um, but I'm sure people that work from a business perspective side of it too, are also, you know, it's just like anything. It's like an artistic director is going to always lay probably to the art side. The board of directors is probably always going to lay towards the business side. Right. Um, so it might be interesting to find people that maybe don't like board members of theaters and ask them too on what their perspectives and what their, their heads argument against, um, artistic directors are, if we can find anybody, it'd be also an interesting perspective to ask too as well. I would add this. 
I think it's important for a theater company. No matter because because these two things are so seemingly contradictory and and just seem to to fight each other so often. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for a theater company to delegate those things so that we can we can have someone who is all about the art, but then also have the person who is passionate about the importance of the art, but may not necessarily be as artistic themselves and more business minded to also include them in the company because you know you I don't know I've not personally met anyone I'm not this way I don't know that it's even possible to be both at the same time um, at least not equally and so in order to be a successful theater company and now I'd have to go do research and see how these other big successful theater companies do their thing but I would wager that they have those those uh, delegations um, with people in those particular positions, you know. Um, and I think it, it, I'll add, I'll say this, and then we'll, we, I'll be done. My part. Um, I think I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear too from one of our uh, very loyal audience members, uh, Don Baker. Yep, We've talked about, about him before. He has great. Uh, insight and very very interesting perspectives on things, and I, I'd really like to see. I'm sure he'll have something to say. Um, Should we put Don on blast and say, Don, um, we want you to be a guest and ask, pick your brain? Is that what we're trying to say right now? Basically, that's what we were. That's oh, what we're I did it. Season. I put it out there now. <laughs> I'm I'm saying it. You know, Don, you're probably screaming right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm. I've just been waiting for the the invite. Well, that's another that's th- right. great thing about Don too is Don literally sees every show, everyone in this area. Yeah. So he's like, also a, he, he's also a playwright, an independent yeah. playwright, mm-hmm. you know, who's been produced. So he so, can come at from like that idea of like you know, I'm sure if he thought everything was not going to be business or art, his work would never get produced because people are like, well, I'm gonna take a risk on a new playwright. You have ice in your mouth. I did. Piece of ice, man. <laughs> I, I was trying to hide it, and I realized it's going to pick up on that mic for sure. Audience, audience was wondering what was happening. I just spit it out. It just spit out of my mouth. <laughs> no, I was going to try and crunch it on the mic, and I just slid out of my mouth. Well, cool. Anyway. Any any final closing thoughts from either one of you? I would just like to. Well, I mean, it's again, it's difficult to say in the era of sort of life we're in but you know in if i look back at atlantic stage and in tor in some cases right we there were times where at least i thought that we did shows that had like named shows as we call them that were not musicals so like waiting mm-hmm. for godot for example right people haven't you know general audiences may have not seen that show but they know that name like it's yeah. so in the populace that it's like oh I, i've heard of that somewhere right so there's that intrigue to go and see it i, I don't know offhand how well waiting for godot did um, i forget but, you know, if you do a show like Death of a Salesman was brought up, it, artistic as hell, right? One of the most lauded plays of all, American plays of all time. Will that be a seat filler? Will people go, oh, I've heard that before, let me go see it? Or in this area, is it just like, there's no point, right? We, and, like, I, don't, I think Atlantic Stage never did Death of a Salesman is because of the at Atlantic Stage, they have the thing about, you know, casting. It's like, we don't want a huge cast in a show. Yeah. Um, which, not to say Death of a Salesman's like 20 people, but it's certainly not like, five you know it, it, it is casting to it i think if we were had the like sort of members to say like oh yeah let's do a huge play no name big cast you know thing i don't know how things would have 
you know, audience would have come seen it, that they would have not. I don't know. But that's interesting to consider. I also think it's placement, too, though, Mike. We, we didn't even bring this up. Placement is just as important as marketing, right? So Death of the Salesman could have worked, but would it have worked as first show of the season? Would it have worked as last show of the season? Probably not. But it could, could it have worked as, like, one of we a term that most people are familiar with around here, snowbirds? Could have been a snowbird show? Yeah, probably could yeah. have. Probably could have done really well. Um, you know, that's the other thing. I feel like sometimes I've seen seasons where, I dare I say, smart theaters or financial savvy theaters first show and the last show of the season are big name drop shows because it's the idea of let's start it off make some money to hopefully pay for half the season and then let's do something big at the end that hopefully we can recoup anything we've lost right so i think there's that idea too um you know that that's that i think it's just another part of picking a season right um, so, I mean, that's, that's just part of your game. Like, I mean, we all, Atlantic Stage was always smart. They would do the original shows or the artsy shows. They tried to always do them January, February, March, April, somewhere in that range. Cause that's when the snowbirds would come. They love to some see theater. Um, just on the off chance we have people listening that are not from our area. Snowbirds, yeah. <laughs> What's a snowbird for them? Snowbird is uh, a person who is from the North that flees the cold weather and it comes to the South to vacation in the winter time. It's a term used in most like tourism beachy towns um, on the southeast. So like South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, people that come down from like North, uh, New York, New Jersey, Canada, Canada um, people that maybe have come from areas that are more artistically affluent than Myrtle Beach. They'll come down for January, February, March on vacation to escape the cold. They fly south like a bird for the warm weather and they fly back north, right? Snowbird. There you yep. go. And the term for people who leave the north because of the cold and move down here because it's warmer is called smart people. That's exactly, yeah, that's about it. If you're in Myrtle Beach, it's 80% of the population. It's not, they're all snowbirds at vacation at one point. It said, I'm retiring there uh, or moving there. That's exactly what's happened. Yeah, if you ask someone down here, did you grow up here? 90% chance. No. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I just moved here for one point in my life. Anyway. Yeah, me too. This guy right here, man. This guy right here. I'm, me too. I'm a native. I'm as close to being native, Mike, as you can get. People people are shocked. They say, you went to high school here? Yeah. You went to elementary mm-hmm. school here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I went man. to high school and graduated here. I didn't. I did not. I, I grew up here, but, you know, yeah. childhood, I was elsewhere. Caleb, you're 19 years old. What are you talking about? Just, 19? <laughs> what the? I'm just joking. No. With you. I'm joking. That little baby face of yours. Yeah. yeah. He's got that beard. He's got that beard, so it doesn't look as young. You guys aren't watching the video. I'm trying. What are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, I'm sure this, this is, is this is know, well, this conversation. <laughs> We're gone. We're done. Yep. All right. We appreciate you guys uh, listening. If you have comments, if you have thoughts, please leave them um, for us to to read. To you know, if you want to call in at some point, this is a new format. We're using Riverside.fm. So this particular format, what we can do, we're we're utilizing video as well, and we can we can live stream. We can enable call-in features where if we ever do a live stream, you guys can call in and ask questions. If there is enough buzz for that, um, if something that we can justify doing, then certainly we will try that. So uh, interact with us. Let us know what you're thinking. Um, If we get enough buzz for that, we'd love to do it. We'd love to have more um, interaction with you guys and and get to know your thoughts as well. So we appreciate your, your listenership. And this is the Long Monday Podcast signing out. Thank you guys for joining me. Season two, here we go. Kicking it off, thank you. Thanks, guys.